The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, a lot of folks, I think, were taken by surprise, Lisa, that last kind of couple of months of 2023 when stocks ripped, yields pulled back dramatically as uh, treasuries rallied, kind of took a lot of people by surprise. Some people were saying maybe it pulled some of the performance from 2024 into that last couple of months of 23. But let's check with somebody uh, who does this stuff for a living, Callie Cox. Uh, she joins us. She's an investment analyst at eToro. Um, she joins us via Zoom. So, Callie, what do you make of what we saw there in the fourth quarter? quarter in 23 and kind of how that might have changed your outlook for 24. Well, you know, I look at the fundamentals, Paul. Um, of course, you say I do this for a living. Um, I'm an analyst. I look at the underlying. So, uh, you know, the fourth quarter didn't really change my opinion on the economy that much because the economic data didn't really change. Um, we got more indications of a soft landing. Of course, markets took that in stride. Um, it's one of the reasons we saw such a strong rally in the stock market. But going into 2024, we're reminding people that it's not unusual to see a heat check in markets after markets rally 15% in two months. So the price action may be different than what we're seeing in the underlying economic data. We're just reminding people of that. Now, I got to talk Bitcoin and crypto because that's that's huge right now. I mean, you have all these Bitcoin ETF hopefuls. They're waiting for this green light from the SEC. Um, what's your take on, on the crypto market? Well, right now, of course, Bitcoin is around 45K or so. Uh, quite honestly, I haven't checked it this morning. Uh, but Bitcoin's rallied a lot since the grayscale decision that we got at the end of August. It seems like a lot of this Bitcoin ETF excitement, at least for now, uh, could be priced in. But I say that um, knowing that there's a short-term view and a long-term view, right? Um, a lot of this excitement could be priced in, but long-term, this opens the door for a new wave of investors into Bitcoin. And we, we think, especially after the details we got yesterday, we think the product is compelling enough to take advantage of it. So that could keep a floor under prices, Lisa, and you know it could even you know help boost the price in the long run. It just depends on what we see close. So, Callie, as so we think about 2024 here, one of the issues is I kind of feel like earnings have to really come through, particularly after the run we had in the last couple months of last year. And I'm looking at the S&P 500. It looks like analysts have about a 12% growth rate in earnings in 2024. A, do you, do you think that's a reasonable number? B, is there risk in that number? Is there upside to that number? How do you think about earnings? 
Yeah, Paul, if you ask me what the most confusing part of the market landscape is right now, I'd say earnings as well, because you're right. I mean, earnings growth does look promising this year, but at the same time, it's not the kind of earnings growth that you would like. And what I mean by that is it's earnings growth driven by cost cutting instead of sales growth, uh, which is inferior when you think about the fact that you know many people associate higher profit with higher sales. So as an analyst, I think about that. It's not the best we can get, but right now in an environment where, you know, people are still dealing with a lot of economic uncertainty, you know, it might be enough to keep stocks void. And right now, I know everybody says, you know, watch the guidance every quarter. Right now, I think guidance is especially important because we got that sea change from the Fed in the fourth quarter and, you know, corporate C-suites are taking that into account when they're planning out the next year. Hey, Kelly, we have some major um, financial firms releasing earnings this week. You got JP Morgan, Bank of America, City, Wells Fargo, BNY Mellon, the list goes on. What are you invite, uh, advising your clients when it comes to bank stocks? Well, banks, of course, are uh, one of the bellwethers of the economy, Lisa, and they're down about 15% from the highs right now. So they're not, <laughs> when you say the stock market is nearing all time highs, you're not talking about banks. And this matters right now because there's a lot of dispersion between sectors. And quite frankly, the fact that you know banks and a lot of cyclical sectors are well below the high, their highs makes them attractive if you believe the economy can stand sturdy this year. Um, one thing I found interesting, we do this survey of retail investors every quarter. Um, it's a survey of global investors. You know, I look at the US investor cut and retail investors are getting bullish on banks. Um, you know, We ask a question that says, you know, what sectors do you own and what sectors do you wanna to add to? And financials were the most owned sector and they were one of the top three sectors in our last survey that investors said that they wanted to add to. So people see value in banks right now, especially as the economic data remains encouraging. And, you know, I don't think that's such a bad stance. So, Callie, I mean, Lisa was long all the Magnificent Seven stocks, so she's laughing all the way to the bank. I, unfortunately, was <laughs> not. So should I be chasing some of those names this year or should I maybe go to try some find some value somewhere else maybe that did not participate? Well, first of all, good for you, Lisa. Like, <laughs> wow, that's awesome. You love your quality risk. Uh, you know, heading into this year, I think it's an environment where you still have to stay nimble. Um, we're advising rotating into cyclicals, you know, taking small steps into them, because we still don't know if a recession, uh, recession is, you know, a serious risk right now. Economic data has stayed sturdy, but there's a lot of pressure on the economy at the moment. So, you know, as you head into 2024, you know, dip your toes in small caps, dip your toes in other sectors, uh, more cyclically rate sensitive sectors, but hold on to that quality risk because we still don't know if we're out of the place yet. And how would you describe today's market environment? I mean, what are your clients telling you? What's the sentiment? What are their feelings? Oh, well, retail investors remain optimistic, but with a hint of skepticism. And I say that knowing that a lot of retail investors have rotated into cash recently. Um, and that, to me, tells me that there is uh, some you know, positioning around economic uncertainty, positioning around a recession uh, that could be coming. And we all know the vibes are fraught, right? Um, confidence is increasing, but there's still you know, this, this palpable nervousness within markets and you know, among investors, even though sentiment has picked up over the last three months or so. That's encouraging to me. I mean, you want a market that's filled with healthy skepticism instead of an exuberance. Uh, but at the same time, that could limit markets in the short term, especially as people digest this January wave of economic data we're getting. Hey, Callie, for the first time in a couple of years, fixed income investors actually made some money in 2023, thanks to that rally towards the end of the year. What do you 
advising your clients to do in, in the fixed income space here? Because, I, again, I can buy a two-year treasury with my federal government and get 4.3%. That's not too bad. It's not too bad. And it's you know one of the best yields that you've been able to get on short-term bonds or short-term treasuries, for that matter, uh, in over a decade. So you know bonds look attractive here. When I talk about bonds, I mean more conservative treasury uh, allocations type of bonds. Um, corporate bonds are a separate discussion. But you know, if you're worried about a recession, treasuries are the classic sanity hedge. The Fed is looking to cut rates this year. Um, you know, if we see more weakness in the economy, we could see more rate cuts priced into the market and on the back of that. So if you're worried about a recession, now is the time to hedge it. And treasuries time and time again have been a strong recession hedge. And one of the things you said in your notes that stood out to me was remember that even healthy markets go up and down. Just a little reminder there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And it's surprising to me how many people forget that. I think you really have to keep your emotions in check in this environment, too. Because yes, again, the, the vibes are fraught and stocks are near record highs. That doesn't make for an easy environment to be an investor in. But you really have to first understand your goals, of course. You know, if you're a long-term investor, um, you know, many pullbacks are buying opportunities for you based on history. But at the same time, understand the fact that the, the fundamentals matter, especially now as markets high a soft landing. So don't get too caught up in the headlines unless you're a trader. And of course, you have to pay attention to those. And Callie, you know, we're, we're still, you know, just a couple of percent away from the all time high on the S&P 500. Are you, do you have valuation concerns here or what is your your sense of valuation in this market here? Well, valuations, I think it's a different discussion if you're looking at the broad market versus the sectors. So broad market, yes, valuations are quite high, but a lot of that is driven by tech, consumer discretionary uh, and more of the growth sectors that we saw do well last year. Um, so heading into 2024, I would say look at valuations on a sector basis. Um, don't get too caught up in them. Um, I think it's it can be a trap to look at valuation versus history, especially considering you know all the progress that we've made in tech uh, since the 2010s. Uh, but right now, it's a great time to look for value. Value last week outperformed growth by the most since I believe July. I mean, in six months. So you know, look at value, especially in the cyclical part of the market. And consider the fact that valuations don't look the same across the board. All right, Callie, thanks so much for joining us. Callie Cox, uh, investment analyst uh, for eToro, uh, which is a platform for retail investors. Uh, a lot of young uh, investors are on that platform. So cool to check in with Callie, former Bloomberg uh, staffer here. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the consumer here. I think the consumer is pretty solid out there. I mean, unemployment rates, you know, historic lows, everybody's got a job who wants them. Uh, looks like the stimulus money is kind of played out. Uh, drawing down on savings, now racking up some consumer credit. But by and large, the consumer seems to be in pretty good uh, place right here. Let's see if that's translating into retail sales. Jill Blanchard, she joins us, president of Enterprise Client Solutions at Advantage Solutions. Jill, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, I'd love for you to just kind of recap for us here in 
uh, mid-January. How the holiday sales season kind of wrapped up for some of the bigger retailers you talked to? That's great. Thanks, Paul and Lisa. Glad to be back. And thanks for having me. So holiday 2023, there are some conflicting reports out there. One of the things that we did see, though, is a disproportionate amount of spend in the two to three days that are leading up to the holiday. So last month, we talked about Thanksgiving. We saw that then. We also saw that at Christmas this year, too. So it could be that consumers are waiting to see what, what sort of money they have left to spend or waiting for a big sale. But it definitely has an implication on how retailers and manufacturers plan their promotions and inventory. So I think that we can expect this to continue in 2024. Think Super Bowl, Valentine's Day, Easter, all coming our way. Uh, and yesterday we saw some good news. Lululemon, Abercrombie, American Eagle, they all raised their sales outlooks because of what you're talking about, that strong holiday season. Um, now, what do you think about this fast fashion trend? We've been hearing a lot about Shein, Timu. I mean, what's that going to look like into 2024? Are they going to start taking over a bit? You know, I think one of the big trends that we can that, that we can expect to see in, in 2024 is um, a bigger emphasis on value. And value means different things to different consumers, right? So it could be buying a used luxury car instead of a new luxury car. It could be buying a private brand product instead of a name brand product. It could be shopping at Costco and uh, Sam's for a uh, better price for the for the larger size. And so really key is for retailers to understand what sort of value their consumers are looking for and meeting them there. I will say specifically, as we talk about things like a Lululemon, there's also a, a heavier lean in to smaller and more affordable indulgences, which could be um, what that trend means. So maybe not taking a vacation, but indulging in more indulgent clothes, let's say. See, I'm the exact opposite. I'm in a stage in my life, I'm getting rid of stuff. And I spent the last several years getting rid of stuff, but I'll spend money on a vacation, but maybe that's just me. Um, the consumer packaged goods companies, um, they were pretty darn good over the last several years during those inflationary period when in raising prices. Where are we in their ability to do that now? Has that played out? Are they starting to see some ch challenges to their margins? Most of that has played out. Uh, we are um, in the midst of doing our new survey where we're going to get a better read as to whether or not we're going to see any price increases or decreases in 2024. But most of them have already played out. They're really more focused on promotions and pricing and getting that right. So th think about this new trend of this uh, disproportionate spend before the holidays. Retailers and manufacturers go to great lengths to make sure that they have the products priced at the right price at the right time. And so with this surge on those two to three days, they're really gonna need to do some different thinking as to how they want to promote products to ensure that they're at the right price to get sold, but they're also not subsidizing existing sales. Also inventory, they've gotta make sure that it's available, you know, 27% of the time Time that a consumer can't find the product they want and they buy a different product, they stay with that different product. So it's pretty key to be on shelf. And let's dig into um, where consumers are going to be shopping. Are we talking, are they going to the mall? Are they going online? Are they going on social media? TikTok is saying they're going to put a lot of money into this. Uh, where are they shopping? That really is as well. One of the big things that we'll see in 2024 are shifts, right? So shifts in the what? I talked about like the trade down in category, the affordable indulgences, where's another shift? And so we saw big e emphasis on more discount retailers in 2023. I think that's going to take off in 2024 and the how. We did see a great success with mobile shopping during the 2023 holiday season. It indicating that it's easier for, for consumers to use that as a medium. So definitely we'll see big shifts in the where and the how. Overall, the volume at the top level might be the same, but the shifts in the what, the where, and the how could be big. How about 
um, luxury here. That's a big area for Lisa. You know, I'm more just kind of the Dollar General kind of guy, the um, Walmart guy. Where's luxury spending these days? Because I know a big part of luxury has historically been, you know, the Chinese buyer, uh, but the Chinese economy obviously is weaker than I think people anticipated at the beginning of 23. So how's the overall luxury space looking? You know, I'll go back to one of the things that I've been talking to our clients about, and that is luxury means different things to, to different people. And so there are products that will be luxury to certain consumers if they're trading, you know, up to, you know, call it a mainstream brand versus luxury to somebody else. They're trading up to a brand that you can't get in store, maybe only online and then to another level. So luxury really plays out in different ways for different consumers. What really is is playing out similarly, though, across the consumer groups is an opt-in to more affordable luxuries, which, again, could be something like a used luxury car versus a new luxury car. And what about buy now, pay later? I mean, that was big during the holiday season. That's the reason a lot of people were able to buy so much during the holidays. Will that continue into 2024? Yeah, there are a lot of eyes on the first quarter of this year for for that reason, as well as a, a potential pantry low. There were so many discounts and deep discounts in the fourth quarter of last year that there's a potential that consumers you know, really leaned in heavily to those deep discounts and now have to use that product up through the first quarter. So there are a lot, a lot of eyes on first quarter as to uh, what the impact could be from debt, credit card debt, as well as pantry loading. Uh, Joe, where are we in terms of the store footprint in this country? I know for the longest time, maybe 10 plus years, the industry's kind of been downsizing its footprint. Are, is the industry right-sized right now? Is the industry right-sized? Um, we we definitely have seen a slow in uh, store growth over the past two years, largely due to the effects of COVID and the focus having to be on supply and pricing. And so we, we, we do see retailers now getting back to uh, the old focus of store growth. And so I think that we'll see a resurgence of, of store growth, but not to the level that it used to be. All right, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, appreciate it as always. Joe Blanchard, president of Enterprise Client Solutions at Advantage Solutions. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We want to go across the pond, talk to our good friend Tim Craighead. He's a director of research over there for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's also the senior European strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us uh, via Zoom from Queen Victoria Street, which is the awesome London headquarters of Bloomberg LP over there. Uh, it's just an awesome building. So if you're ever in the city of London, go check it out. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. I know you guys at, at BI put out your annual kind of 50 stocks to watch here. I'd love to kind of get from you kind of maybe some themes that are on this list or maybe a, a cool name or two. How did you guys approach 2024? So, Paul, this is this is one of our favorite little projects we do each year. If you think, you know, November, December, it's all about making all these big outlooks over markets and industries and, and whatnot. And this is where we can gravitate into naming names where we see interesting ideas. And this is, it's a group of 50, 50 companies that are a part of our broader list of focus ideas. Um, and as a reminder, this is a group of, 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 of companies where we have a really strong fundamental view that we think is differentiated from the market and where there's catalysts that we think will happen to turn the market towards our view. 
and all of these have catalysts coming up in 2024. And you know, it's pretty well split. Um, you've got about half that are from the Americas. You've got 30% from uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa, uh, and you've got uh, about 20% from Asia. So that's kind of the broad scope. And AI seems to be a really big part of that list. Is, is that a sign of, of what's to come? Yeah, I tell you, AI is interesting because when we were pulling this together, my my knee jerk is, gee, AI had a lot of hype in 2023. You know, is this at the peak of that classical Gartner um, hype cycle? But what we're seeing is, might have been hype in 23, but actual execution in 24 is the, is the bet and. In combination, we think that we're in the midst of what will be a, a, a building IT spending cycle. And so if you bring these two together, then the likes of an Alphabet um, or an Accenture that are at the heart of either creating AI or implement it, implementing it are a big deal. Or then if you go into, say, an SAP um, with their enterprise systems, they create the data that the large language models are going to use. And then you get into applications. I mean, yeah, I don't know if either one of you all happen to use Intuit with, uh, with TurboTax, but they're implementing AI to make tax prep easier for individuals. And Match, um, anybody for Tender or Hinge, uh, they're, <laughs> using AI, <laughs> they're using AI to better select um, photos. Um, so there's a lot of different applications here. Yeah, well, Match is one of the names on this list, and it stocks up big today on the LA Investment News, so there's a winner there. Um, Tim, any themes kind of jump out at you as, as you looked across what the, the Bloomberg Intelligence analysts uh, uh, put up there on their list? And again, you can find this list in the, uh, Bloomberg Business Week. It's in uh, the edition of Bloomberg Business Week, and you can also find it on the Terminal BI Go. Yeah, so I, I think another big piece to this uh, is what's going on from the standpoint of central banks. This was big last year, but it was it was big because central banks were still tightening and it was higher for longer and there was the sort of the financials riding the wave of rising interest rates. This year, it's kind of the opposite. Um, you know, we as is the market are looking for a central bank pivot, uh, whether it's here in Europe or in the US. Uh, we think that puts pressure on financials margins. We have a broad negative focus idea on European banks. Barclays is a specific one that we have on this list. AXA, one of the big insurance companies, is also here for similar reasons. And there's, there's new insurance policy regulation that's being in, put in place that makes them more sensitive um, to interest rate changes. You've also got, though, the flip side, um, UK home builders have been under a lot of pressure with higher interest rates, and we think that may start to turn. And a company like Persimmon uh, is, a, is a case in point. So both sides of the interest rate argument. What about other factors? Like, of course, we have the, the wars in Ukraine and Gaza. Did you take that into consideration, too, when you were making that list? Um, yeah, we did. Um, General Dynamics is on the list. And, you know, part of this is, you know, the unfortunate element of, of rearmament um, across Europe and, you know, ongoing defense spending, um, as well as what's going on with, with those guys from a, um, a commercial aircraft with, with Gulfstream. So, you know, that's, a, that's definitely a point of reference. Um, another 
element of this that I think is quite notable is there certainly are always opportunities with um, uh, management change and restructuring stories. And, you know, there are a couple of big ones. Union Pacific has a new CEO that uh, is, is coming in who's got a history of what's called precision transports. Um, you know, really honing in customer service and times and this, that, and the other, it really improves efficiency for railroads. And, you know, our analyst there, you know, thinks that that is not yet fully um, understood. Um, Vivendi over here um, yep. is a big restructuring story where they're looking to break the company apart into three component pieces and potentially list them. So that sort of uh, management change, restructuring corporate change is another element across a number of the companies. So, you know, I see our good friend Herman Chan, who covers the regional banks here in the U.S., he put Truist on this list. And I like that because, you know, these regional banks really got crushed. And it felt like a lot of the quality regional banks were kind of thrown out with, you know, kind of everybody else. And so maybe it's time to start trying to find some of the good ones that got thrown out. Yeah. And, and Paul, it's interesting because notwithstanding the prospect for um, falling interest rates, which generally is 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 a negative for the banks. Truist is looking to take specific action. You can sort of put this into the the, the corporate specific um, category of raising capital um, through um, asset sale that can bolster their 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 capital and make them all the better positioned. Um, HSBC over here is a is another case in point like that. You know, massive bank big European exposure, big China exposure, but we think the problems are are well covered with provisions and what isn't fully understood is how they continue to expand dividends and buybacks. So there's certainly some positive financials notwithstanding the backdrop. Tim, what about mergers and acquisitions? I mean, yesterday was a big day for pharma mergers. We had a ton of those. Um, how did that play a role into what you were considering when you thought about these companies? Yeah, there, there are a couple here from an M&A vantage point. Um, uh, number one, uh, Savic, which is one of the largest uh, chemical companies in, in the world. They're selling their steel business and really focusing attention in on the petrochemical side of things, which we think plays into a good cycle you know, as we progress through 2024. Um, ExxonMobil. Uh, is on the list. Now, you know that they, they made a huge acquisition in the Permian Basin late last year, and we think that sets the stage for improved returns where they've lagged some of their bigger integrated oil peers. Um, so there are a couple of those, those M&A stories that certainly play in. Hey, Tim, you, uh, your other hat, uh, in addition to putting these lists together, is kind of just strategist for the European market. In 30 seconds, what's the European equities call for 2024? Uh, tale of two halves, Paul. Um, okay. I know that's a, a cliche in ways, but with the rally that we had into the end of the year and looking into um, what we think is going to be a pretty challenging fourth quarter reporting period coming up and a slowing um, economic backdrop, we think it's a tough first half. I do think at some point that it gets recalibrated. Maybe there is a bit of, of, of give up in the markets from these elevated levels that sets a stage for the second half looking into 2025 with recovery that could be quite interesting. All right, Tim, thanks so much uh, for joining us. And uh, Tim Craighead is the strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence over in London. And uh, they are out, BI's out with their annual list of 50 companies to watch in 2024 from Alphabet 
and BYD to Eli Lilly and Vivendi. Keep an eye on these global stocks this year. You can find that in Bloomberg Business Week magazine. You can go online to Bloomberg Business Week and catch it there. You'll find it on the terminal uh, BI Go. Some really interesting names there. And if you want to do more work on any individual name, you can go to BI Go and there's complete uh, company analysis, research reports on all the companies uh, and industries there. So that's kind of how you navigate through that if you're looking for some good ideas this year. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Here's the one of the concerns entering 2024 is that huge rally we had kind of in the last 10 weeks or so just pulled forward a lot of performance that maybe we would have looked forward to in 2024. So maybe that's taken away a little bit of some of the excitement for 2024. But let's check in with somebody uh, who does this for a living. Uh, looking to uh, chat with Phil Komar. Uh, he covers all this stuff here. Uh, Philip, your managing partner, global strategist at MRB Partners. What did you make of that that rally we had really towards the end of the year? I think it caught a lot of people, both in equity markets and bond markets, kind of off guard. Yeah, it did. And uh, it was breathtaking, really. But it was all on the Fed's pivot towards an easing policy, right? So we had seen through it much of the year, there was still this lingering anxieties that slowly got priced out in terms of recession fears. And that sort of solidified the pivot from the Fed solidified the soft landing view, which I think is, uh, is probably a mistake. It's going towards a no landing. But nonetheless, it solidified that caused this rally. Um, that being said, as you said, coming into the end of the year, there's a lot of a lot of chasing going on. And we ended up with that so called Goldilocks scenario. Um, fully priced or well well discounted, let's call it, within both the bond market and the equity market. So Now, what about tech stocks? I mean, it hadn't had the best start to 2024. Apple was struggling a little bit. And NVIDIA, yesterday, um, they just had, they helped with the rally yesterday. So what are your thoughts as far as tech stocks into 2024? I mean, how much of a part will AI play into that as well? Well, I think the AI theme has got legs over a long haul, but I think there was a lot of euphoria associated with that. And often, you know, that euphoria gets priced in rapidly um, in, in a, a short period of time, and then it takes a long time to digest for those earnings to be sustained and the penetration to the broader market. So I think the unfortunate part for tech is, is well, you can decompose that between the, the Magnificent Seven, so to speak, uh, or the, the leaders and the rest. But, but in general, as a tech index, the unfortunate part is we have high earnings, but we have, if you look on a five-year basis of forward earnings expectations, they're very elevated. So it's got a big earnings bar to over hurdle here. And at the same time, CapEx spending towards tech is weakening. So I think this, this is a real challenge for tech is there's a lot of optimism in the price and the valuation. There's a lot of optimism in earnings expectations. 
And that's a big hurdle to overcome. Whereas I think some of the laggards in the, even the cyclical and some select defensives have lower earnings hurdles to overcome. They offer better, better valuation support. So while we've seen that big rally coming into your end, um, I would say heading here, you still want to be positioned in sort of that laggard catch-up theme. And that kind of spreads itself into some financials, maybe aerospace and defense is some of our likes. We recently pivoted back towards uh, energy um, some of, after being you know, beaten up a little bit last year on a relative basis. And then on the defensive side, it's more of the healthcare. So, so looking for that transition, uh, laggard catch-up theme. So we've heard financials. We had actually had Scott Croner, the strategist from City, on this morning. That was one of the sectors he called out here. What's the risk here? And I'm not sure how material it is for a lot of these commercial real estate loans for these banks. Is that I'm hearing that's not so much as a risk for some of the bigger banks. Maybe it is for maybe some of the regional banks. How do you? What are, how do you think about that for these banks? Yeah, so I think you really should decompose them. First of all, the aggregated uh, of the commercial real estate is nothing in, I know there was some scares last year, but it's yep. nothing in comparison to the subprime crisis and all right, that. So right, let's, right. let's put it on that scale. It's, it's very small in comparison. But it's heavily concentrated within regional banks. Okay. So when you look at the loan portfolios of the, the big banks, they're not very exposed to it. They got great capitalization ratios, all those kind of things. So if you're, our preference towards banks, even before that uh, Silicon Valley mishap, because of this reason, if, was to favor if, the, the mega caps. Yeah. So the mega, the JP Morgan, the Bank of America. Exactly, okay. yeah. So the well-diversified banks, they don't have a risk. The loan portfolios will suffer, and there will be some regional elements to that where you'll see more blow-ups along the way. So I would I would discriminate to the extent that you can. Now, they dominate the index, so if you're taking the index, you're probably okay. But but if you can discriminate, definitely go towards your mega caps. Yeah. Now, in your notes, you talk about um, the recent dramatic easing in monetary conditions. So what exactly does that mean? Is that Soft landing, no landing, and what the heck does that mean? I mean, I sound like Matt Miller in the promo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I think I think this is the key. I mean, a lot of the market had made a uh, miscalculated bet last year, and we leaned heavily against that that there was a recessionary scenario, and now they've gotten kind of solidified around the soft landing. You know, soft landing means that you end up with still positive growth but below trend growth, and allow for disinflation, therefore allowing for the Fed to cut rates. And I think that's a mistake because back when in October, when bond yields were higher, Fed policy was was Added, uh, expectations towards the top. We had a soft landing in place at that point. And everything since, in the last, since October, this easing, we've got interest rate expectations easing, we've had bond yields drop, we've had corporate bond yields um, spreads come in, we've had mortgage spreads comes in. That's a dramatic easing in monetary conditions. And that actually takes us from a soft landing to a no landing. And when I mean no landing, I mean we're not going below trend growth this year, which really has some intermediate term ramifications for the inflation outlook. We're gonna be in some soft window here, well, let's call it transitory disinflation, mm -hmm. so nope. to speak, where the Fed can take an advantage of it in the near term as we get some soft prints. But a lot of that is pretty advantageous and kind of lucky. But if we're not going below trend, that super core basket, that services X shelter, is going to have a hard time really coming down in terms of inflation. Of course, that's a huge weight on the Fed's PC basket. So for your investment outlook, what are you guys expecting this Fed to do this year? So we're so right now priced into the market uh, something like six rate cuts, so 150 yeah. basis points throughout the course of this year. I mean, I think the Fed wants to take advantage. It's been pretty clear that it wants to take advantage of this this window of disinflation to try to rate cut. Um, we expect 50, maybe 75. Um, nowhere a validation towards. Well, first of all, we don't think it should cut for the year. For, for the year, year. Okay. yeah. So it doesn't need to cut. Yeah. We think it will anyway, but it won't validate what's in the bond market. Okay. Now you talked about some of the things you liked. You mentioned uh, energy, defense. What are you avoiding? <laughs> well, honestly, we're avoiding a lot of the growth names um, related stuff. So the tech is a place where we'd be avoiding um, all the other defensive sectors because we're still we're still constructive on pro growth. We just expect bond yields to come up. Um, so we're selective on our defensives. Uh, we would be away from those bond proxies because I think the downward just adjustment in bond yields has probably had it here um, where it'll soon stabilize and we'll see uplift in bond yields as the year goes on. So some of those bond proxies, the defensives we'd avoid, we'd favor the less exposed area like healthcare. 
in the cyclicals, it's those traditional growth stocks. And actually, if you look underneath the surface, if you take away, as you said, those those magnificent sevens and you start to look at small cap growth versus small cap value, value has been killing it, um, really, the growth stocks. It's only because of those seven that help lift it up. So there's already a transition going underway here. And so that gets into your tech-related names, whether that be in in the consumer discretionary index as well, and, and uh, as well as tech. Do you have any view on the topic of the day and tomorrow, which is an ETF for Bitcoin. Do you have any view there? Are you just waiting? I mean, do you guys even traffic in any of that kind of stuff? Uh, we get questions periodically. I mean, look, I, I think I think Bitcoin and cryptos is a theme here to stay, um, or it'll come back. But it, um, often, what happens, and you saw this with the original. I've I've spent twenty some years uh, doing mania profiling booms and busts and those yep. kind of things. And often what happens is the theme comes in in a whoosh, sort of like the original .com. There was a whole yep. bunch of names and companies yep. and stuff that were crap in that that you didn't want to own, but it was a thematic, it was a new technology revolution. Then it it crashed, it had to go through a digestion, a restructuring phase, and then it comes out with something more legitimate, it, it, it morphs itself. So Bitcoin might be one of the players. Most of those other cryptos will be gone, yep. um, but uh, but we'll, we'll formulate it over the next few years as regulations come in and, and structure comes to that market. And then there'll be some element of a legitimate theme coming back out of it. I just think we're in that window now where- But if, if BlackRock calls you up Tuesday and we got an ETF, you want to buy some of our Bitcoin ETF, what do you guys say? No, I'm, no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not that I follow it that closely, but, uh, but no, we're, we do track it. We do do some analysis on it. Well, how about AI? It. Because a lot of people are, are yeah. uh, you know, saying AI kind of feels like the internet maybe. Back in 1995, this is Dan Ives from Wedbush Web, Web, Web will say, this is the 1995 moment for AI um, that this is really going to be established as something across, it's just going to be that big. Do you, is, do you subscribe to that? Yeah, I think AI is going to have tremendous ramifications through a lot of different businesses. I think it really will penetrate and it'll be a long-term thematic. But unfortunately, as you remember in the 1990s, the original dot-com, there yep. was a lot of euphoria around it. There were a lot of, you know, even the winners, um, you know, Cisco and, and, and some of the other technology-related names that were the top of the market back then took a long digestion period while they reformulated and came back in the 2000s. So, so it doesn't always make a good investment. I do think that that structural theme is here. I'm interested in how that penetrates other businesses rather than just the sellers of yep. AI. How are people going to maximize profit, widen margins, those kind of things by implementing it? And I think it may have a shorter rollout than the original tech wave, but it's still going to be years. This isn't months. So. Yeah, because it's interesting. I mean, we, you know, Bloomberg News has done scraping of conference calls at every one of the S&P 500 companies, last quarter of the quarter before that, Call that AI. Oh, yeah, because it's a boof to the stock. Of course. <laughs> well, back in the day, you know, when it was the end of that dot com bust, I took a radio company public, plain old radio station company called Entercom. And we had orders coming into our desk for the IPO from nobody, people we didn't even talk to. And we'd call them up and say, What are you doing? They said, Well, we're just buying this dot com thing and Entercom. And we're like, No, it's not a dot com. It's not an internet company. It's a radio <laughs> company, you numbnut. Exactly. So, and it feels <laughs> like that right now. Yeah, yeah it feels like that. So, I mean, do, on the tech side, you like if you want to play AI, do you just kind of stick to some of the big names today? A lot of people are saying just buy a Microsoft or something like that, as opposed to trying to find the niche players. Yeah, I think probably at this phase, uh, I mean, so there will be some real winners, I'm sure, in some of the niche players. I mean, really sort through the mess. But um, but I think you play the, the the core themes. Also, right now we're dealing with a an up cycle this year in trade and the semiconductor cycle. So some of the you know semi theme is better played outside of U.S. markets into places like Korea 
Korea, um, Merging Asia, Taiwan, you guys, things do, like do, that. So we do. Yeah. Is your, how much of your portfolio is outside the U.S.? Yeah. So we we do research, but and we do global integrated uh, financial markets. So we do yeah. all markets. Um, and so we do have an overweight in Emerging Asia, ex China, really? um, and we have an uh, overweight in in Euro area as well. Yeah. We used to call when we talked about Asia. We'd be Japan and non-Japan Asia, and we don't do that anymore. But and people are talking about Japan coming back. I don't know. Even Warren Buffett's talking about it. So yeah, knows? we have a small position in Japan. Yep. Well. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Philip Komar, thanks so much for joining us. Philip Komar, he's a managing partner and global strategist at MRB Partners, talking uh, all things markets across the board here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.